because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, this week, I am super excited for the guest that we have. I've talked about him uh, on previous shows. He is probably my favorite. I, I won't say my favorite because I might offend other people, but let's just say he's definitely top five, top eight favorite energy CEOs. And I think inarguably the most articulately out articulate and outspoken uh, energy CEO, uh, Chris Wright. And so Chris, I'll, I'll bring him on in a second, but you may have heard of him recently. He's been all over the news uh, because he continued this campaign challenging North Face which took this stand against the oil and gas industry and yet is a great customer of the oil and gas industry. They're great in terms of that's what their whole business depends on. And Adam Anderson, we had talked about and had on the show, he started this, but Chris has now really publicized it to the point where you can see billboards in Denver that are challenging North Face, which I think is amazing. I'm very happy to see this. This definitely would never have happened eight years ago or something like that. So I think it's good progress. And I'm very excited to have him on and hear about what motivated him, what he's doing going forward. So Chris, welcome to Power Hour. Alex, thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be here. All right. So let's, you know, when you and I first met in late 2015, uh, when we did a debate together, I assume you remember this. I uh, do. That's right. <laughs> and we were in, uh, had you read Moral Case at that point? I had. I oh, had. you had. Yeah. Okay. So this yeah, is about a year after. I'm a big my, reader. <laughs> this yeah. is a, a year after my book came out and I had never heard of you uh, until then, until we met that day in the room. And so the idea was there were two people, there's this host, Aaron Harbour, who's a very good host. He's like unusually good at asking fairly neutral questions and challenging both sides of an issue. And so he had this debate and he's like, okay, you want to participate? And I was in town, I think. So I agreed to do it. And then you were this uh, CEO whom I didn't know about. And then we had you know, different opponents, I think one from 350.org and one who was a climate scientist, in my view, climate catastrophist. And I was very impressed by sort of how in depth you were uh, on these issues. And at the time, I'd never told you this, but I figured like, oh, he has to be like, he must be a CEO of a really, really small company. Otherwise, how the hell does he have time to figure all this stuff out? Uh, but then it turns out, you know, Liberty Oilfield Services is a public company, very successful uh, company. So let's start off with what got you into this? Because I think most people think, oh, you must be like legacy in the oil and gas industry. And that's, that's your background. Yeah, no, not, a, not at all. Um, Alex, yeah, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, you know, and in high school in the early 1980s, the mania then was we were running out of everything. You know, of course, this had started in the 60s, but I, I didn't really learn about this till high school. But there was this view we're running out of oil, gas, minerals, farmland, you know, it's, you know, catastrophe was coming this time out of depletionism, running out of resources. And I was, I always say my short bio is science geek turned tech nerd turned energy entrepreneur. But I ended up deciding to go to MIT very specifically to work on, to study plasma physics and work on fusion energy. MIT had two tokamak reactors, looked the most promising way to fusion. Fusion is what powers the stars, so a lot of energy there. And if there was an energy crisis, I wanted to dive in and, and be part of the solution. And uh, I th what did, how did you put it in a funny way, like I decided to go to MIT or something like that? Like that. That's, not any, uh, that's impressive that you were there and particularly uh, studying physics. I know that that's a, that's a challenging thing to do. So what kind of, once you, what, what was your trajectory with Fusion? 
So I got there and right away, my freshman year, I got a small, what would they call the independent activity program, basically a low paid job at the Plasma Fusion Center. And so very bottom level, just had helping set up experiments um, and doing a little background research. Um, and what I learned out of that was, yeah, I still love big science, but I realized I didn't have the patience to do it. Um, it's critical. Um, I still read about it. I love it. But as an experimentalist and something that's difficult and slow moving, I just realized I didn't have the patience. And then I, I did a summer job the next summer. First time I'd ever worked indoors at Honeywell at their test instruments division. And uh, it's right when laser printers were coming out in a competing technology called thermal printers. And there was nine of us on the team to make a manufacturable prototype at six months. So it was exciting. It was fast paced, although it was still a big company. And it's from that summer job that I realized I'm not going to be a scientist. I'm going to be an entrepreneur because if I could just have the really hard drive and all in people on a team, we could do something special. So that, that's I was 18 that summer. That's the last time I've worked at a company with more than 10 employees that I didn't start. So I've basically been a career <laughs> entrepreneur. Um, in energy, you know, that I, but, but I mean, it, it was, it was a, a bumbling way to get there. I went to graduate school. I was undergrad. I got a degree in mechanical engineering. I went to UC Berkeley in electrical engineering. I worked on solar energy for a bit when I was there. Um, I worked on geoth. I went back to MIT in electrical engineering. Um, but through a gal who, who I met when I was uh, one semester at UC Berkeley is the only reason I got into the oil and gas industry, but just by great luck. But it turned out if I really wanted to work in energy, and impact the global energy situation. I mean, oil and gas and fossil fuels were dominant when I was born, they're dominant today. and They're gonna be dominant when I die. So it was quite lucky that I, it wasn't thoughtful, it wasn't planned out, but just through a gal, I ended out uh, with some connections and into this industry. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you, I think there's always a combination of just some circumstance, but then there's something special about it that you recognize. So for, for me, I'm curious what it is for you. For me, it was, you know, my background is philosophy and I love, I love studying the fundamentals of human thought and action. So I, I tend to just like fundamental things. Like you see all these consequences in the world and then what's at the base of that. And one thing that intrigued me about energy is this is the fundamental industry. This is the industry that powers every other industry. And so our decision-making about this is going to impact for good or ill every industry and therefore every aspect uh, of life. And then I saw the history and I saw, oh, there have been so many bad decisions made that I think with the better philosophy, better philosophical framework would have been better. And so that was very motivating to me to get in and to try to influence the trajectory. I'm curious what, what stood out about oil and gas to you that made you stop, it, stop in that industry and say, okay, this is gonna be my life. Well, I, th I think for the same thing, it's just so foundational. Oil and gas or energy in general, they're just this. They're, they're, the, they're what enable everything else. I mean, including human life. I mean, to me, it's just phenomenal. This, this weird biologic event that we don't even know how it exactly it happened, but getting, um, oh my God, and now I'm blanking on uh, the name of the little... Uh, bodies inside us, my God, mitochondria, my God, this, this accidental event in evolutionary history that puts mitochondria inside those organelles, inside other living species, they allow eukaryotes, they allow complex life. 
So energy is just fundamental to everything else that happens. So I think quickly I realized that, Alex, and the combination of it's everywhere. I mean, every country in the world can produce, consumes oil and gas, and you know, close to 100 produce it. So I was also very interested in traveling and cultures and seeing the world. So yeah, energy is foundational, it's global, it's forever, and it's central to the, to the plight of humanity. So yeah, once I realized that as a young guy, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is where I'm going to be. So how did you feel and then how did this evolve in terms of people's claims that, you know, what I would call the negative side effects of the industry, the alleged negative side effects in some cases, like they're so bad that we shouldn't use this. Like how, how what was your view, you know, going up? Like, how did you take that? Because, you know, some people, it drives them out of the industry. Like for me at the beginning, I would have never considered going into fossil fuels or anything like that because I just thought, I didn't think the world was going to end, but I thought like, oh, there's this stuff is a mess. And why can't we use solar? Why can't we use nuclear? That kind of thing. So like for me, and, and I grew up in a very science heavy environment. So I was at the, the top math science school in, in Maryland and none of my classmates ever thought of, oh, let's go into this because we had all these options. And it's like, why would we go into this old, dirty industry? So that was even, you know, late 90s. Um, that that was happening, but I'm yeah I'm curious for you how the how the negative perception of the industry affected your perception from the beginning and then how that evolved. I always love a debate or a challenge. Um, so yeah, but 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 I did have the same view. You know, I grew up in high school and we knew the oil companies were greedy and they were dirty, but you know, and they were going away. And the fear was they're going away too fast for the new stuff to replace it. But absolutely, I didn't want to be part of yesterday's Texas dirty technology. I wanted to be part of the future, nuclear, solar, geothermal. Um, but then seeing, A, I came into it from a very technical aspect of it. So then just understanding how do you drill a well? How do you move fluids that are two miles underground of rocks? So technically, it became very fascinating to me right away. The combination of technologies, just understanding geology, understanding hydrocarbon formation, but the fact that people challenged me, you know, well, isn't it this or isn't it that? I actually quite liked that, Alex. Um, it, it's gotten to a different level now. Like when, when I testified in front of the House Climate Crisis Committee in Boulder, Colorado, uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion had a funeral for Mother Earth because of my appearance at the thing. So I didn't have dramatic challenges like that. But um, you know, it's just, I always say if something's so important and so central, people have strong emotions about it. You know, when the cable TV doesn't work, you know, they're infuriated. Um, not that they don't like cable TV, but they count on it so much. And so the industry that you and I work in, it's just so foundational to how the world works that people have very strong opinions about it, mostly ill-informed. And then they think they want to get rid of it. But think of the colonial pipeline, right? We have a couple days or a few days where there's a little bit longer lines to get gasoline because of fears. And I mean, there were fist fights in the parking lots of, of gas stations. So look, there's no question what we do is important. Um, and yes, I am, I am constantly in discussion or debate with people about it, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay, as, as long as we don't cause too much disaster and too much damage for low-income people and opportunity, and that is the direction we're going. So I am much more concerned about the date debate today than I was 20 years ago. So it seems like you, the fact that other people disagree with you doesn't inherently bother you. Is that Correct. accurate? That's accurate. I think that's an, I've been thinking about this uh, lately because I just, I feel like 
there's something in me that I got from a very young age where I just, the fact that other people believe something has no effect on me one way or the other. Like it doesn't give me any confidence. And I think a lot of that is studying history, just knowing that even the smart people in societies have been wrong in ways that I would never want to be any part of. Like if I just think about, okay, majority support for slavery throughout history. And, uh, you know, even in you know, Hitler or the Nazi party getting elected by a plurality in Germany and Germany being the elite nation and them having the Nazis rise to power then. So I just, my feeling is like, I, I, like I, other, if people all agree on something or they say they do, like they could be right, but they could not be right. So the fact that they do agree means nothing unless they have reasons for it. And so it's just sort of like, if they all say, oh yeah, we agree, or they say you're an idiot or all these things, it just doesn't make any difference. Like it just, it has no resonance to me. It just as even registered to me. But I think that's unusual and you seem to have a similar kind of thing. Yeah, I, I've always viewed it as a challenge. I, as a kid, I wanted to read history. I wanted to understand the world, you know, beyond my house or my neighborhood. So I've always been a passionate reader. But yeah, of course, totally struck by those things. I mean, but, you know, people believing the world was flat and then the, the intellectual argument that the world is actually round. The, you know, this the sun not revolving around the earth. These early scientific debates or dialogues were so intriguing to me. It's the same thing you're saying, Alex. Everyone believes something, but it turned out it was wrong. And then what a challenge it was to find the evidence and then to face that opposition and move people. More recently, this, you know, I say climate change today, it's like a real issue, but there's such a mania around it and people are so passionate, know almost nothing about it. That's not new either. You know, I mean, think of the Salem witch trials, you know, I get the worst one to me because it's not that far away. A hundred years ago, eugenics was just mainstream thought among ac academics. If we didn't sterilize the black and brown people and people that we thought were less desirable, the planet was going to pot. This is outrageous. You, your home state, California, forcibly sterilized tens of thousands of women just a few generations ago, a hundred years ago. Eugenics only got really blown up and, and, and shrunk with, with Hitler and the Nazis. I mean, that's horrific, but crazy things get believed when they get spun up in manias and, and people believe them because everyone else believes them. Therefore, it must be true. But yeah, that's the same thing. If everyone believes something and believes something passionately, be careful because this can justify all sorts of actions. But yeah, I love that intellectual challenge. It's not, it's not a vote that decides who's right or wrong. It's just evidence and facts. So I'm curious, so when did you start to have success in oil and gas? And I'm curious how that also relates to when you decided to try to influence the world of ideas, because you've, you've come to prominence now, but I know behind the scenes, you've been supporting different kinds of at least pro-liberty causes uh, for a while. So I'm interested in your sort of professional and activist trajectory. Yeah. So as I said, look, as a kid, um, I had an experience seeing a homeless person on the streets when I was 12 years old. The only time I ever went to my dad's office, you know, and I'm in middle-class suburban Denver. I just couldn't believe there was someone without a roof over his head and enough food to eat. I knew nothing about substance abuse or mental illness. Like I didn't fully grasp the problem, but it was just terrifying, horrifying to me that there was someone so poor living a few miles from where I lived at that time. And so that set a lifelong trajectory for me to understand, well, for the first few years, what causes poverty. It took me traveling to Afri Africa and hitchhiking up and down the East Coast of the US in my later teens 
to realize that was asking the wrong question. It's not what causes poverty. It's, that's the human condition throughout all time for everyone. The question is what gets people out of poverty? And so, you know, contrasting my experiences in the ghettos of Harlem or the Bronx or in DC and Roxbury in Boston with what I saw in rural Kenya in Tanzania where people materially were massively poorer, but they still controlled their destiny. You know, this is my wife, these are my kids, these are my goats. And so they felt in control of their life. So I really became a libertarian free market guy, you know, late teens, around 20 years old in my quest of how do we get people out of poverty? And um, so that, and that, that mission is probably still the biggest thing that drives me. That's certainly the biggest driver in the energy debate. It's not just that, you know, I think other ideas are right and the evidence supports them. That's certainly part of it. But it's that the cost of this mania, as of all manias, this one is just monstrously high. Because when people have an, a, a view with a lax perspective on the various challenges, um, they end out bad, this very bad decision making. We're, we're making energy more expensive and less reliable. And it's the industry that enables everything else. Nothing could be more damaging to human well being, particularly low income people, people just getting their chance or just rising up in life. So in any case, so that's sort of the personal odyssey. That one semester, I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley. They missed my first check, just a paperwork mistake. Oh, really sorry, we'll give you a next check. Uh, we'll give you your $862 twice next month. I, you know, I was financially independent of my parents. I was proud I'd gotten my last money from my parents when I was 19 years old. And I needed a job and I called this gal up and you know, she connected me with a company called Hunter Geophysics in Silicon Valley in California. But they had a technology that could see, could detect the motion of fluid deep underground. So this is you know, magma flowing into volcanoes, um, waste disposal, but the biggest application was really oil and gas, hydraulic fracturing. Heck, I learned what hydraulic fracturing was in 1985. And so I became super intrigued by that idea you know, worked a day a week for this company when I was at one semester at Berkeley. I went back to MIT. Uh, I was getting doing a, there I was working on a PhD in electrical engineering, but I still worked for this little company in California. I wrote a couple technical papers about how this mapping technology works. And I sort of had the bug right away. When this company was going bankrupt, I, I left MIT halfway through my PhD to go try to save this seven or eight person company. And that little story, I worked with crazy guy number one and then crazy guy number two, we developed some software predictive, a professor at MIT trying to predict how hydraulic fractures grow. So again, it just things sort of snowballed. And then God, now 29 years ago, I was still a pretty young guy. I started a company called Pinnacle Technologies back out in that oil field capital of the world, San Francisco. And, um, and we developed these technologies that just could measure how fluid moves underground, and then software modeling tools to predict it. And, um, you know, so again, we worked in volcanoes, we worked in geothermal power, but our main business, our big business was oil and gas. And very much, you know, blind squirrel finds nut. I was just around the people, right people at the right time, maybe had an idea or two, uh, ended up playing a role in the very start of the shale revolution, you know, sort of a different way to try hydraulic fracturing that we brought to Mitchell Energy, who'd been trying for 15 years how to get commercial shale gas out of the Barnett Shale north of Fort Worth, Texas. So Mitchell deserves the dominant credit. That awesome technical team were tenacious and they were open to ideas. 
And, uh, and myself and Mike Meyerhofer had a couple ideas that when you put them together, uh, just by luck, uh, started to, started to allow the commercial, the production of shale gas. And um, I waited a few years because, boy, all my customers at Pinnacle were early shale gas producers. I waited two or three years after that and then started an early shale gas production company in the Barnett Shale. Um, so then I was sort of on the technology and production side. And I've mostly been on both of those sides yeah, the last 20 years. But look, this industry matters for human lives. It's huge. It's global. It's super technical. And there's tons of entrepreneurial opportunities. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy luck that, 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 that a gal uh, roped an roped a aimless guy into this industry. I feel pretty damn lucky. Well, you keep mentioning the gal. Is that your wife or is that some? That's my wife. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've met Liz, but yeah, <laughs> yeah my wife, Liz. Um, so yes, you know, we, we met when we were 18. She was a ski racer trying to make the Olympics. Didn't make the Olympics. Went to Stanford instead. And then she got this, you know, summer job. And then during school year job at this tiny little company in, in Mountain View, California. So when I went out there to UC Berkeley, had she had a connection for a job uh, when I needed one. And again, just, just luck after that. All right. Well, just so everyone knows, this is a bit of a modest, I would say, description by Chris. I mean, so we're talking about Mitchell. I mean, Mitchell is known as you know, the beginning of the fracking revolution. And so it's pretty amazing that Chris's company played a major role and helping you know, bring that about because that is the thing. I mean, that has been the technological and economic revolution in energy, in all, not just oil and gas, in all of energy in the, the past few decades. And it's just, even in my short time, in, you're studying this. So I got started in 2007. That's when I really got intrigued. And, uh, and I knew, I knew just economically and philosophically peak oil made no sense. But even at the beginning, when I was studying it, they weren't talking about the shale revolution. They were talking about shale as, oh, this is something that doesn't work. Like this has not yep. worked for years. And, and in fact, you, you know, I love Ayn Rand and, and Atlas Shrugged, one of the things that one of the fake, you know, made up things that happens is one of the entrepreneurs comes up with a way to unlock shale. And they talk about it as nobody thought this could be done. And like this actually happened during my lifetime, you know, the beginning of it. So it must have must have been really cool to be a part of. It was. It was. Again, better, better, uh, better lucky than good. But yeah, you know, fantastic because it started with shale gas. And of course, at the beginning, we thought this is the Barnett Shale. There's a unique stress state in the Barnett Shale where you could create simultaneous growths of hydraulic fractures that were not just parallel, but even cross-cutting. Because from a vertical well, you had to have that without getting too technical. To make shale work, you've got to have one well touch millions of square feet of underground rock. You know, the hole you drill is only seven inches in diameter. You know, to get millions of feet, you'd have to, you'd have to drill a well, you know, hundreds of thousands of feet long, but we're not drilling hundred mile long wells. So to do it, you've got to have these fracks and then a single plane, which is what we thought fractures were, would just never get there. But in the Barnett Shale, there was a lucky stress state that allowed this even in vertical wells to create a whole bunch of fractures. And then of course, as horizontal drilling technology was coming along, it's like, wow, if you could marry creating multiple fractures along a horizontal well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need the unique stress state anymore. We just need a little bit better downhole technology to figure out how to create first several, then dozens, then hundreds of individual fractures growing away sort of perpendicular to these 
two mile long, started with less than one mile, then one mile, now two mile long horizontal wells. You know, it's just, they say it's, it's pretty simple. It's just a whole bunch of plumbing. But what's great about oil and gas is we put all the plumbing two miles underground where no humans live. We, we build that plumbing with water, which is cheap, and it's removed from human, human existence. You know, when we build solar panels or wind farms or giant collecting devices in the surface where humans live, it's much more impactful on humans. And steel and cement are far more expensive than water. So yeah, oil and gas just has this lucky thing that the resources are huge and they're deep underground away from where people live. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. It reminds me of Jeff Bezos has this point where his, his he, you know, he talks about how eventually space will be like, the industrial district will be basically space and earth will be zoned for residential. And there's some equivalent of that with oil and gas, where it's just like, yeah, fortunately the subsurface, which who's living at 5,000 feet below? Nobody, right? We have this industrial zone that is remarkably sealed off from us versus, you know, surface mining, which you know I'm all in favor of when it's a good idea, but like surface mining. And then, yeah, having to have this massive infrastructure that disrupts other things that you would do. I mean, like oil drilling yep. takes up so little, particularly the horizontal drilling just takes up so little space. I mean, my wife and I are outdoor adventure, mountain climber, travel the world people. I've been a longtime member of an environmental group. So yeah, it's one of the things I really love about the shale revolution. Oil and gas already had relatively high energy density, so a smaller amount of land impacted for a large amount of energy. But with the shale revolution, that's just the same thing on steroids. It's just an incredibly small amount of acreage can power you know, our entire country. It's, it's, I, I, I tell the story of natural gas. Alex, so when you got out and started jumping into this and you said 2007, Think of yeah. 2005, six, seven, natural gas prices were very high. Right. We, I mean, we, I remember, I rem and I remember importing LNG, import LNG terminals, because I, I didn't know much, but I did write an article in 2004 about LNG imports. So I think it was the first energy thing I ever wrote. And I, and I just studied it at a superficial level, like I was studying kind of ever, just as a general commentator. But I remember for sure, yeah, we need LNG import terminals because natural gas, natural gas is so scarce in the U.S., and, and we had 1,600 rigs drilling for natural gas at that time, 1,600 rigs in the United States drilling for natural gas, and we were the largest importer of natural gas in the world. So fast forward just 14 years. Today, we have 100, from 1,400 to 100, 100 rigs drilling for natural gas, and we're the fourth largest exporter of natural gas in the world. So that's just a story of efficiency, smaller material, smaller surface footprint, dramatic increase in productivity. I wonder why that story isn't widely reported. I didn't even know that particular fact. That's a great one. Yeah, it's just, and again, and, and what followed on from that is, so, you know, it just drove the price of natural gas down so low that that's reshored manufacturing to our country, you know, fertilizer manufacturing, petrochemicals, some steel manufacturing is coming back to the U.S., um, home, you know, $1,500 per family savings for American families because of this lower cost of energy. So I'm this weird oil and gas guy that celebrates how much the shale revolution pushed down the price of gas, pushed down the price of, of oil, pushed down the, of petro, the cost of petrochemicals, just basically makes people's lives better. Yes, it's been tough for our industry because if you get much more efficient and smaller amount of people can produce a lot more, that's economic progress. 
What that means, our industry needs less companies and ultimately less workers. So our industry has been going through a painful shrinkage process over the last 15 years. And that's tough. And it's very tough for the professionals in the industry. But boy, the rest of 99% of humanity is benefiting from more plentiful, lower cost, smaller environmental impact, um, oil, natural gas, um, and natural gas liquids, which make all, which lead to all these plastics and materials that empower everything else. And just say one point on the shrinkage of certain aspects of the industry. And usually when you get much more cost effective at something, part of what happens is your market expands. And there's been some of that, but of course we have many artificial constraints uh, on the expansion of the market. When you look at energy poverty around the world, all the ways in which the US and other countries are discouraging the use of low cost reliable energy. This is on my mind in particular because I'm testifying on Wednesday about Puerto Rico. And you just see something where I just got a note from somebody who works in industry there and he's telling me like, look, we have all these regulations that are making it impossible for these companies to have reliable electricity. So pharma companies are moving out of Puerto Rico. And you think of what that means for opportunity or what does it mean to have unreliable electricity without a really expensive diesel generator, which is what most people are in that situation in Puerto Rico. Like, how are you gonna get a modern remote job if you don't have a reliable internet? connection. And yet they're talking about like, hey, let's shut down this coal plant immediately, which is 20% of their electricity. And there's they're trying to shut down natural gas. They're trying to, you know, what they call 100% renewable. And there's just, so, the, you know, your industry is creating so much value, but it could be creating so much more. And there are just all these people who are being tragically deprived of that value. Oh, actually, you're hitting that, that same point. This misunderstanding of energy, this misunderstanding of climate change is leading to just a huge human toll. Um, yes, and as you and I have both spoken many times about, I mean, look, a third of humanity still cooks their daily meals burning wood or dung or agricultural waste indoor. You know, this, this isn't green. This kills two to three million people a year and leads to significant deforestation. So I think that, you know, I show in our report, the ESG report, that border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and you can see a fully energized society with modern hydrocarbons has a much smaller footprint on the land. And you you can have beautiful rainforest and a tourist economy, as opposed to struggling with deforestation and erosion problems that are so big in Haiti. But Alex, let me take that to the climate change thing. I, I talk about, there's two different countries. Who's, who's been the most successful at reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Depends how you count it. If you count it in gross terms, the U.S. by far, hands down, over the last decade or 15 years, you pick the time period. If you want to do it in percentage terms, it's the United Kingdom. Um, but they're completely different ways that we did it. In the United States, it's the surge of shale gas, natural gas displaced coal in electricity, cleaned our air, Natural gas is now 40% of U.S. electricity should have driven down the price of electricity, but, but misinvestments and unreliable energies has, has tamped, has stopped that reducing the price of electricity, but had only modest rise or in line with inflation rise in electricity prices, except in the countries with huge, the states with huge renewable mandates. So that's what happened in the U.S., the United Kingdom did it the way politicians want to do it. Top-down mandates, thou cannot do this, thou must do that. They made energy massively more expensive, um, less reliable. And what did they do? They just completely deindustrialized 
the birthplace of the industrial revolution. So for, you know, the ad execs or, you know, environmental leader in London, well, no big deal. But for blue collar people living in the Midlands of England, you know, they took away jobs, they took away tax revenues, they made it very hard to be a low income person. And uh, not just because their energy costs are more expensive, but middle and lower income people tend to work in energy intensive jobs. So it's their jobs that disproportionately left. And United Kingdom, of course, stands alone at the top as the largest importer of greenhouse gas emissions. They didn't change their consumption habits that much. They just made it so that stuff wasn't produced in the United Kingdom and was just produced somewhere else with cheaper energy. So these whole territorial, our country or our state's gonna lower greenhouse gas emissions, they're just silly. All they do is displace those emissions to somewhere else. They export the jobs and import the emissions. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about your activism in energy. So when did you start speaking up about this and then the, take us through today when you know, you've, you've, you know, you're, you're on major television shows and all this other great stuff? Well, at about 15, 17 years ago, my original company, Pinnacle, the Underground Measurement Technologies, was contacted by several of the national labs that wanted to do demonstration CO2 sequestration projects inject CO2 underground into either aquifers, mostly brine aquifers, and then see, could you tell if it, it's going to move and leak back up the surface? Can we really sequester it? So a oh, new business opportunity for me. So I dove in again as a technical guy to understand the chemistry, the physics, the background of climate change. I started to follow the data on temperature and sea levels and sea ice, um, uh, pH of the oceans, all of these things. So I started giving talks on climate change probably 15 years ago, you know, at universities or around just to, because even then, you know, the movement was just starting, but most people just didn't know anything about it. And I thought, boy, if we're going to, we're going to go big on something, we should understand it. And then I've continued to do that through the years. Um, I've probably been in, in this, probably talking on the shale revolution, same time frame, maybe 15 years. Um, but, you know, it's a speak at a conference or at a university or a school or a high school. You know, I wasn't making videos or I wasn't doing it thinking I should get this message broader. Not just because I wasn't thinking broadly enough, but, I, you know, I was accepting a lot of speaking invitations. And I've just continued to do that. Um, but, the, the, you know, the dialogue is heated up. The rhetoric is heated up. And then um, probably both the writing of our ESG report now that we're a public company and People do want to learn more. So we, we wrote a very different report. And almost by coincidence, Alex, the whole North Face thing happened at the exact same time. You know, in fact, the North Face one was first. You know, I made a video and we were trying to put billboards up in Denver. And for any of the viewers that don't know the story, North Face uh, in December decided they didn't want a co-branded jacket with a company in our industry. They didn't want to associate with oil and gas. I mean, how silly is that? Their products are all made out of oil and gas made using oil and gas and supporting an industry, the outdoor industry, that's impossible without oil and gas. So, but the funniest thing, Alex, so I make this video that we're going to release together with some billboards at Denver to kind of aim at the younger outdoor crowd in Denver and, and North Face and its parent company, VF, are both headquartered in Denver. I'm going to put these billboards up, try to do it fun. That North Face puffer looks good on you. It's made out of oil and gas. Thank you. We, it took us over two months to get a billboard company to run that billboard. We're gonna pay you, Alex, you own some billboards. I'm gonna pay you to put my billboards up. And for two months, people said, they said yes. And then no, 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 we're not gonna run that message. That was controversial 
or political, saying that jacket looks good on you. Here's what it's made out of. Thanks. So that got delayed. And so that video, we didn't release the North Face, thank you, North Face video until we got billboards. And that turned out to happen like literally the same day as our Bettering Human Lives report came out. So yes, the last four weeks have been the busiest four weeks of my uh, trying to bring sober dialogue to the energy space. So let's talk first about the uh, ad response. And then I want to talk about the ESG. So what I, I've seen some of your interviews, how has the, you know, how have you found the response? Is there, uh, do you feel like it's increasing your profile permanently? And then what do you want to do going forward? The, the response out was just crazy. You know, I mean, that the, the, the little video on North Face just saying what it's made out of, it's gotten over 5 million views. I mean, it made it on TikTok. I've never seen TikTok in my life. I, I get, I get uh, emails and voicemails from, you know, people in Europe or Australia, people in Brazil. Um, so I think it struck a chord of people and most of the people, Alex, not in our industry. You know, I got a call from a doctor in rural Colorado who says I drive around to see all my patients. People don't understand if I didn't have gasoline or if gasoline was more expensive, I'd see less patients. You know, oil and gas is the infrastructure. So I would say a lot of people outside of our industry are frustrated as well by the demonization of oil and gas and the scaring of children. You know, in 10 years, the world's going to end. Something like 20% of kids have nightmares now, self-reported nightmares about climate change. So I think that's gotten so hot and so crazy that just a few sober words, maybe with a touch of humor, just struck a chord way beyond what I ever imagined. But no, I, and, and absolutely, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue with that. We're gonna continue to point out the great role oil and gas plays in the world and enabling the modern world. We're certainly gonna award a whole bunch of other companies as great partners with us and across industries. Um, you know, to me, it's how do we get a sober dialogue, whatever works and a little humor and a little bluntness apparently does. So no, that's, this, is a, this is a start, not an end. One thing I feel very vindicated about is you've you've really proven in practice something I've I've told companies for a long time, which because they would always say to me, okay, Alex, you're effective, but nobody will listen to me because I'm in the oil and gas industry. I'm like, well, first of all, they'll listen to your silence. So if you're not saying that you're good, it's certainly going to affirm that you're bad because every self-respecting industry says that they're good. But also if you just say it sincerely and you explain why you're doing it, then a lot of people will believe it. If you actually just tell them honestly why you're doing this, I mean, the perspective should, they people perceive it as, oh, you're in this industry because the industry paid you to be a bad person or something. Whereas really it's no, I wanna be a good person. I chose this industry because I believe that it's good. And you know, you obviously have that personal story. And I just, you know, we're seeing it resonate. And I don't see a lot of people saying, oh, this guy's just a liar for the industry. I think they're saying, no, this person really believes it. And, and I'm so excited that somebody from this industry is finally standing up. Where, where have these guys been? Alex, I, I think you were just, that, that, that last minute is so spot on. Our industry for the longest time didn't say much at all. We just dealt with regulators. We kept our heads down. Like, well, how's anyone going to know what you do? Um, and then when opposition came to us and we kept our head down, like you can't win a debate if you're not at the table. And, um, and then too often we come out with sort of polished bullet points, you know, that have gone through legal thing and, you know, they're, they're so polished that 
everybody reads everybody reads them as just that. This isn't a sincere human being talking to me. These are carefully scripted words. There must be a lot of secrets behind there if they have to script their words. So I do think sincerity and honesty. Are we perfect? Hell no. You know, do we have negative impacts? Of course we do. We should honestly talk about them. It's just the positives are so much bigger than the negatives. But hey, the nets are real positive. And, and, and that's also maybe an entree to, the, to this ESG report we wrote. Look, I, I don't, I'm not I'm very mixed feelings about, about you know, the roles of corporations and, and politics and things. I'm very proud about our company, but, but uh, we'd not written an ESG report until quite recently. But one of the things that really drove me there is most of the ESG reports written today, they're sort of following the guidelines or the issues that our opponents who demonize us want us addressed. So I always say, you know, our critics say we're, we're awful. And, and then our industry rights report saying, well, we're, we're actually less bad than you think we are. Less bad than I mean, we used like, to be. Yeah, and, and less bad than we used to be, you know? And, and of course, on our negative impacts, all that's true, but you can't talk about one side of the coin, particularly when the other side of the coin is giantly bigger, bigger, right? Anything in life, we're like, what are the benefits? Okay, how big are they? What are, the, what are the drawbacks? What are the negatives? How big are they? And it's always a relative balance of those two things. But our reports are always just saying, well, we're, not, we're, we're less bad than we used to be. But they don't say enough, and I don't think they say it sincerely enough, about how critical we are to the world. People know that, but they almost feel like you're not supposed to say that. That's impolite. Our opponents will be offended by us championing oil and gas. Well, I have no problem offending our opponents. They want to end our industry. They don't really want to end our industry because, of course, their modern world would go away too and their lives would get miserable as well. But it's big business now to say our industry is just catastrophic. We got to get rid of it as quickly as possible. We're responsible for all the ills in the world. And mostly these are issues that are very data rich. So all we did in our report was just gather uncontroversial, clear data on the various issues and then just lay it out there. So, and I have gotten tremendous reaction from people in our industry saying, yeah, we're gonna do that, we do that too. Chris, do you mind if we steal the report? I'm like, please do. Yeah. Um, and so I'm hoping to, that more and more people in our industry will just you know, speak from their hearts, speak openly, speak honestly, put the data out there. There's, there's a thing, Alex, and you're as familiar with this as I am. When I speak on climate change at universities, no one will ever debate. You know, how can we have this giant, most critical issue in the world? Wouldn't you, if you were on either side of that debate, you want to get on a stage and have a little back and forth in front of the public. But the real facts of climate change, it's a real issue. It's slow moving. Its impacts are quite modest today compared to so many other bigger issues. And I think the scientists working on it, they know that too. And, um, but I think they should have, and, and it's a source of funding for them. There's not an evil conspiracy there. The vast majority of people doing climate research are very honest, upstanding humans doing work on research, but a small number of them and activists, politicians, and environmental groups have just hijacked this cause and turned it into something it is not. Um, but that's damaging to humanity, that's damaging to society. And we need an open dialogue about, is there a climate emergency? What are the emergency things that are happening that are hurting human well-being? And what are the costs to try to mitigate those? I'm curious, did you ever read that thing I wrote a few years ago about ESG, uh, how to approach it? 
Um, I'm certain I did. Absolutely. Cause yes, I, I did. Cause, cause I just want to like, this is so in, in a couple of cases, so I just should say like, I am not at all the man behind Chris Wright. Chris Wright is his own uh, kind of phenomenon, but I claim vindication because you're doing things that I have been advocating. You're doing them on your own, not as me behind the scenes at all. We've had but, similar perspectives. Yep. Since, yeah. yeah since and so I think it's, um, you know, another one when I, because when I, I got into ESG a few years ago and my view was, okay, the legitimacy of this whole ESG is people are interested in the long term and also the wide ranging impacts of what you do. So if they're actually interested in that, they should be really interested in the positive impacts of what you do. So I said, you should do like what I'm calling full impact reporting. You should talk about all of the impacts of what you do on the world, not just the negatives. And who can argue with that? And I did, you know, I worked with some companies on theirs uh, and I think it made a positive difference, but you're the, you're the first one independent of me doing, cause I didn't work on yours, but like, I think you really showed that. And now that there's this blueprint for it, that you can really do this full impact approach and it gets positive. Yeah. I'm hearing other people do it. So it's, it's one of these things where, like it's one thing to have the idea of how to do it, but once you have the embodied example, like you guys have done, it's so powerful. And that's also, I was so enthusiastic about what Adam Anderson did with North Face. Yes. The embodied example of here, it's one thing for Alex Epstein to say, oh yeah, you guys can do this. Look, it'll work for these reasons, but no, he did it. And then it did actually work. And now Chris Wright is doing it and it works and you'll see, wow, these people, as long as they're sincere and they're morally confident and they're clear, nobody really has anything to say to them. All these powerful people that you would think would just destroy them with the brilliance of their scientific arguments, they're nowhere to be found. They're mostly dealing with you by ignoring you, by trying to ignore you. Exactly. And that's been a disappointing thing. Um, I want more challenges to our report. <laughs> We've gotten, I mean, imagine an ESG report is a bestseller, but it, it is crazy <laughs> how widely it's been read, but not so much by our critics. You know, I'd love to have feedback. What's wrong in that report? Tell me your different take on this issue. But the, the main reaction has been silence. And even in the middle, Alex, one of the most disappointing thing to me is I've had four interviews now with print journalists, one today with a guy who writes about the outdoor industry. Fantastic. Read the whole report, a fulsome dialogue. The other three print journalists interviews I've had, none of them read the whole report. Oh, I read the front, the summary stuff. I skimmed it a little bit. And, and the biggest question was, why did you write this? You know, I mean, the public's all going one direction. You know, where's your pledge of a certain percent greenhouse gas emission? You know why? Why, you know, like this sort of shock that we would do something differently. And, um, and that was a strange reaction to me. I would be okay with, I mean, I wanted to be challenged. But number one, I think I'd love to see that print journalists engage more, like read the report, tell me what you like about it or don't like about it or your own perspective. But it was purposefully laid out of, here's the facts and data as Liberty sees them. And, um, and the, yeah, I think it points to a pretty clear direction of what's most important, how we can best lift humans up and better human lives. And why would the goal of your life or your company or your broader mission be, be anything different but bettering human lives? The, the, that reaction you're getting is unfortunately familiar to me because I, you know, I wrote Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which is one of the best-selling and most influential energy books of the last decade. So it's not like an obscure book. It's a New York Times bestseller. It sold something like probably more now, but 80,000 copies, which is very unusual for any book, let alone an energy book. And yet there's only been one serious attempt to like refute it at all by any scholar. 
and it was in uh, Energy Law Journal. And then I wrote a response, which I, I, well, I arrogantly think put it, that to rest and just showed the whole methodology was wrong. And essentially my argument was they just straw manned my argument. So the person didn't address yeah. my argument. She just straw manned it by saying, oh yeah, Alex says we should use fossil fuels and nothing else forever. And it's like, I don't remember saying that because I didn't say that. I said nothing like that. I said, this is the most cost-effective thing now and for the foreseeable future. So we should be free to use this along with all the, alter all the alternatives, which we should eagerly develop uh, as well. But I, so I think that what's happening though, with what you're doing, with what Adam has done, with what I'm doing is that can, you can only be ignored a certain amount because once you get a certain amount of penetration, I think Schellenberger is showing this, Steve Coonan is showing this, you're having more and more of what Michael Schellenberger would call like the environmental humanists. So the people are looking at these things from a big picture, human life, life bettering perspective. It's like you're seeing them start to need to respond. So I think in Scientific American, they tried to respond to Coonan but also they have no response. You cannot look at the benefits and side effects of fossil fuels going forward in any objective way and think any of these policies that they're proposing are at all justified. And so I'm quite confident that we're, each of our examples is going to inspire more people because guess what? None of us have died. None of us have been like refuted or shamed into non-existence. It's actually making our lives better and we're finding very receptive audiences. Oh, I totally agree. And the, the thing we should want that everyone should want is serious issues. Just have a serious dialogue. Um, and yeah, look, when I testified in front of the Colorado, you know, Senate and the House, you know, Climate Crisis Committee, they don't want a serious dialogue. That's disappointing. You know, to me, it's like, here's the pluses, here's the minuses. I tried to quantify the benefits of their policies and the costs of their policies and no response. But eventually people realize, no, you should not spend trillions of dollars without, hey, are the, are the benefits going to be bigger than the cost. And are we being honest about what we're doing? But yeah, you, met, you mentioned a number of great books. Schellenberger's book is excellent. Kunin's book is, is fantastic. Lomborg has been great on this topic for 15 years. Matt Ridley, Rupert Darwell now in the United Kingdom, uh, Robert Bryce, uh, yourself. So there's more and more people. And I think there's a growing audience for sobriety on energy. You know, now it's been front and center. Either the world's going to end or it's not. That's got people's attention. I think it's up to all of us to just be honest and sincere in this dialogue. And the more that dialogue happens, the more the heat will come down, the more sober direction we can go. But uh, look, the facts are on the facts are on the sober people's side. Um, what we want is more dialogue, more engagement. It's critical. Awesome, Chris. Where can people follow your work and Liberty's work? Wow. Well, Liberty is at your website. Uh, libertyfracknok.com. And there's all sorts of videos and media there. Um, for this North Face campaign, some people more savvy than me, I think created a YouTube channel. I think I have my own YouTube channel now. Just Chris Wright. Do you have a Twitter? I don't have that yet. I don't have that. I don't even manage my YouTube either. But, but, but there is stuff that, you know, my stuff is getting out all over on Twitter. And, um, and I also found if you just Google Chris Wright Liberty on YouTube, you know, like 25 videos will come up throughout the years. I couldn't believe all these old talks I gave or different places are around. So, you know, Chris Wright, energy nerd, you'll find me. Um, but I appreciate Alex, you doing your, uh, your, your podcast, your work, your books, your talks. That's what we need. Let's, let's stir it up. Let's have an honest debate and, uh, and let's, let's push forward to, to leave it open so that people can better their lives. Awesome, Chris. Thanks for joining me.
Thanks for having me, Alex. Take care. Thanks again to Chris Wright for joining me. So I recorded the interview with Chris on Monday, and now I'm recording this outro on Thursday, uh, a little over a day after I testified in front of Congress about Puerto Rico, which Chris and I discussed. So that went really well overall. I'm not going to summarize it all here, but if you go to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash improve the planet, you'll see a lot. And at the moment, at least, if you go on my Twitter, you'll see a lot. I think one of the a video I had where um, I'm addressing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was there, which I didn't know she would be there, but she was there. Uh, I addressed some of her statements and that already has 150,000 views uh, on Twitter and seems to continue to be spreading a lot. So it's really interesting. So make sure to check that out at the YouTube page, youtube.com slash improve the planet. You should be able to find that also as I'm recording this. I just recorded a really good, I think, in-depth response to what Ocasio-Cortez uh, said, because I didn't get the much of a chance to address her because she didn't address me directly and just wasn't, wasn't time. Uh, but I really am actually doing my best to try to convince her. Uh, so that's, that's a tall order, but I think I at least did the best job I could possibly do uh, to try to break through. Because if she could be broken through too, that would be uh, amazing. So got to at least try. All right, let's see. Uh, anything else that my Ryan is a little bit uh, just in a bunch of different places because of all of that stuff going on, uh, but just the usual reminders. So if you want to be on my newsletter, which I highly recommend, uh, go to alexepsteinlist.com. That's alexepsteinlist.com. Uh, or you can also go to industrialprogress.com. And also you can go to energytalkingpoints.com, which is a good reminder to check out that website. Also, I mentioned my Twitter, twitter.com slash alexepstein. I'm always posting new talking points there. And if you want to support our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. A lot of the work, you know, the promotional stuff and the research and development that makes it possible to have really good experiences uh, testifying, you know, that's made possible a lot by accelerators. So thank you for that. And I forgot if I mentioned, if you have questions, comments, love, mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. So I'm on an every two week schedule as a reminder, but I'm going to have a bonus episode with Dr. Yaron Brook, my old boss from the Iron Institute, since we wanted to, I want to talk to him about Puerto Rico and he gave me a lot of insight on it. So I'll release that. And then I have another one uh, in two weeks with Dr. Saifedean Amos, which is a really interesting discussion about what he calls fiat money, but also how, well, I won't, I won't preview too much, but just about how government coercion uh, and government dictating of things really distorts many more areas of life than we realize. So look forward to that. Thanks as always for listening, for the support. Uh, until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.